an honor to, to be here. It's an honor to jump in. We are officially in kind of crazy to think lesson 19. I had a I had a meeting yesterday and this gentleman was talking about uh, the lessons and the teachings on to number our days. And he's like, yeah, I just don't know when they're going to end. <laughs> I don't really know either. So anyway, hey, we're going to jump into Joel 3 because we've been there for a long time. And so uh, what we're going to do is Joel 3, technically 16 through 21. We're really only going to cover one verse, but two major chapters from other books. So that's all right. We, we might get there, right? So uh, anyway, I want to do a backdrop because I think it's really healthy. Uh, if you're like me on any level, when you talk about the end times, it's not that you don't forget. It's just you kind of need these gentle reminders of how it keeps fitting together. Am I right? Kind of like, okay, we've been talking about the judgment of the nations. We've been talking about the characteristics of the millennium. Uh, and so just as a brief backdrop, Joel 3, 16, Kevin, if you'll go there, uh, it just says, the Lord will roar from Zion and raise his voice from Jerusalem. Heaven and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the Israelites. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. Jerusalem will be holy and foreigners will never overrun it again. So this is the beginning of, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing the judgment of the nations take place, right? You remember this? And now we're seeing the beginning of the description of this a thousand year period. I cannot tell you how many people I've heard since we started teaching this saying, I've never really dug in to the millennium much. Because it's, it's, everybody's just kind of like, oh, it's a thousand years, and then that's it. And so I, I want to I highlight the characteristics again, okay? I know you're like, man, we've done this for weeks. It'll transition easier into our topic today. So just as a quick backdrop, okay? Let me do this if I can here. So just as a, I'm not going to write them out, but I just as a visual here. So here you have, right, what we would call the tribulation. You guys should be good at drawing this out. And it is seven years. This is called the great tribulation, the last three and a half years, okay? So all I want to do is just reference here. Now, whenever we say the day of the Lord, Ray, what do we always think? Yeah, we think a day. We think it's just one day. So when I give you the characteristics, you got to remember, yes, and then some. Okay, it's that mentality. So in this, some of the kicking uh, points that starting off is, is the Battle of Armageddon, the Valley of uh, Megiddo that we're going to see. And Ray, who's coming to that place? Uh, the nations that are going against Israel in the, in the uh, last days. That's right. So they are up in the north and eventually they're going to make their way down to Jerusalem. You got to understand that. But that's the Battle of Armageddon. But that battle is not just one specific place. That's their meeting point, And then they're going to keep coming down. Okay. Now, in that, we know that the Antichrist, he eventually gets kicked into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is hell, okay? The Antichrist is out of the picture. So when we talk about a thousand years, that, that person, right, that says, hey, by the way, in the three and a half year period, you know, uh, didn't I write something up here? <laughs> Rich, what are you doing? Dude, I, I didn't do it. Okay. I promise. Did you see it disappear? Anyway, so the Antichrist, three and a half years, he says, hey, by the way, I'm God. And he does that in a temple. It's the third temple. Kevin, what are the three temples up until that point? Uh, it would have been Solomon's temple. Okay. And then what they call Herod's temple, which would have been rebuilt, part of the rebuilt temple after they come back from uh, Babylon captivity. Good. Yep. The third temple is the one we're talking that doesn't exist yet. So somewhere in here, 
The third temple has to be rebuilt, but it hasn't been built yet. Hence, the Antichrist has to come in, attempt to establish fake peace so that he can, I believe, walk into this temple and then halfway through, he's going to say, hey, I'm God. The Antichrist at the thousand years, he's no longer in the picture. He's not in the abyss. That's where Satan is. Remember, the angel comes down, has a key, puts Satan in the abyss. It's a holding tank. Satan is in a holding tank for a thousand years. The Antichrist, though, is in hell, two different places. It's kind of a weird language, I know, but as we get into that, but just again, characteristics. Now, in all of this, we know ultimately, right, that, and this is clear language, Jesus is king. What's cool is, I can already tell, at least from here, you guys are already getting this. You're attaining this. But I think that's why it's key that we keep going over this, because I want us to get this in order to number our days. In this study, I believe God's given us more and more clarity, more and more clarity on all of this stuff, which that's kind of the beauty of digging into the word this much, this in depth. Now, in this, Jesus is going to rule with a rod. There will not be fighting in the thousand years. No fighting. Okay. If there's even an issue, Jesus has got his rod. He's got his wooden spoon. There's no time out. Okay. (laughs) So it's also an answer to prayer. Remember the Sermon on the Mount answer. Uh, I'm praying that what? Thy kingdom come here on earth. So Ray, you even prayed this, that yes, we believe this is a period that the kingdom's actually going to come, but we can taste that here. A lot of this, when you look at what's happening uh, in the kingdom, there's a spiritual reality we can walk in right now. But it's, it's God with us mentality. Yeah, yeah. But I, I just, and I think that's what a lot of people, my, my biggest hesitation on teaching on something like the thousand years is like, okay, we're waiting for it. It's coming, so then therefore we don't have, then we don't have to do anything. You can just kind of do this and twiddle your thumbs. And there's theology out there, you guys, that actually believes that. So then hence, we don't have to do anything. I don't really see that anywhere in Scripture. Hence, he's given us so many things. Now remember, that's kind of the beauty of this. There will be a period of rewards in this time. Because of what you do today, hence the number our days, we actually will get to experience rewards in the thousand years. It's not workspace, but yep, guess what? You get to experience the work that we've done. There are verses relating to the new covenant we're in right now that we're supposed to be reigning and ruling right now in life with him. I love it. It really should cause us, if you really understood the thousand years, it really should drive us to number our days today. Like, that's a bottom line. Like, I really want to experience blessings in a thousand years, so I'm going to do work. Does that sound bad? I don't really care. I'm serious. We talked about this even on parenting side of things. Sometimes you do, quote unquote, reward-based parenting. Well, oh, why would you do that? Because it works. No, just that. <laughs> rewards are going to come, but in this period of experiencing rewards, there will be a period of peace. You're going to experience long lives. Longevity. If your life is cut short, it's because you've turned against him. Spirit of rebellion. Again, the scripture that would support this. One of my favorites, right, is that, that the training of the nations is going to take place. Do you remember this? The nations are going to cling to, right, the Jews and the robes. They're going to come back to Jerusalem because they want to know who God is and they want to be trained up in who he is so that they can go back. In the thousand years, you're going to see that. Why? Because there's non-believers in this period of time. It's a, it's, isn't that strange? And yet, I think the more and more we dig into this, uh, 
I'm going to just say a couple other things. Nations are going to be punished. Individuals are going to be punished. There will be rebellion. There will be deception. Hence, at the end of the thousand years, Satan, who was in the abyss, is coming out. For a period of time, he's going to deceive all of the the rebellious, right? And there's going to be a massive fight. And then in that, really, heaven just comes in and wipes everything out, and Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. He's done. Okay? That's kind of a big picture. Now, one, one, one uh, thing, characteristic we taught about last week that I want to expand on is that the land will be restored. And I want to talk more about that today. The land will be restored in the thousand years. Hence, now go to Joel 3, verse 18. Joel 3, verse 18, it says, In that day, the mountains, and I love this language, will drip with sweet wine. And the hills will flow with milk. I mean, when you think of Israel, do you not think about all of the prophetic promises in in the Old Testament and Exodus? Kevin, can you go to Exodus 3, verse 8? There's so many pictures about Israel being described as two things. There's actually a restaurant here in Richardson. It's called Milk and Honey. Israel is defined and described as the land of flowing of milk and honey. Exodus 3, 8. I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them from that land, the land of Egypt, to a land that's what? Good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That image that you're beginning to see, yes, it's just the beginning. He decided to talk about it prophetically, but oh, by the way, they're going to experience the fullness of it in the thousand years. The fullness of the land of milk and honey will be experienced in the thousand years. Amos 9, verse 11 through 15. Somebody actually sent me this verse as a result of last week's message. Thank you for sending it in. I was saving it for this week. So I love how it's just an affirmation of this. Amos 9, it's a minor prophet. And in that day, I will restore the fallen booth of David. There it is. Do you even hear that language of booth? What are we celebrating, you guys, in the thousand years? The Feast of the Booths, Festival of the Booths, even that language, you start picking it up. I will restore the fallen booth of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. Do you remember in the millennium? What are we going to see? Rebuilding of the cities, homes. David is concerned about who's going to live in his home. Do you remember this conversation? Well, what do I do if I don't want my uncle living there with me? I like that. But Amos says, all of this is going to be rebuilt. Why? So that they may, in verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all of the nations that are called by my name. This is the Lord's declaration. He will do this. In verse 13, it says, hear this. The days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes, uh, the sower of seed, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with it. Don't miss that. The mountains, Kevin, go back if you can, verse 13. Look at this. The mountains will drip with sweet wine. Did we not just read that in Joel? And it says the hills will flow with it. And then it says in 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They will rebuild and occupy what? Ruined cities. Plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their produce. I will plant them on their land. They will, here it is never again be uprooted from the land I have given them. Yahweh, your God, has spoken. That's it.
Uh, I want you to go back to Joel 3, verse 8. All of the stream, 18, Joel 3, verse 18. Okay, this is, these are the things. All of the streams of Judah will flow with water. And a spring will issue from the Lord's house. Ray, where is the Lord's house? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So a spring is going to actually pop up from a temple. Now, this temple, Ray, is not the third temple. Which temple is this? This is the millennial temple. This is the millennial temple. So technically, everybody with me? This is your fourth temple. The dimensions are way different than any of the other temples. That's how we know this one is a different temple. Uh, We can call this, I'm going to get into this with Ezekiel here in a little bit, but we could call it the Ezekiel's temple. You can call it the millennial temple. You need a placeholder, Ezekiel 47. But then what's happening? Do you guys see this little river right here? It says that in Joel 3, verse 18, Kevin, if you'll go there, it says, and the streams of Judah will flow with water. And where does this water come from? From the Lord's house. So in Joel 3, verse 18, it prophesies about the millennial river. Okay, uh, Rich, can I come to you now? Can I, can I go to you to talk about this, the temple? Yeah, because of my great research, uh, Google. <laughs> uh, there's actually, uh, there's an article just that came out last month. They have found 49 cisterns under the Temple Mount with 42 channels that bring water into these cisterns. So this is totally plausible. Plus, God's not going to say, hey, build a temple, but you need all this water for washing and cleansing Mm. for the sacrifices without providing the water for that. So this is totally feasible. That's pretty powerful. Joel 3, 18 says a spring is going to come from the Lord's house. It's not even built yet, by the way. The third one's not built, nor is the fourth one, but we know prophetically it's coming. Okay, now in this, Ray, you got something? Yeah, it's, it's back to, yes, this is going to happen in the natural realm, uh, but there's a river flowing right now we can get into. Jesus talks about this in John 7. Uh, you want to go there, Kevin, if you don't mind? Ray, Ray is very good about bringing it back uh, spiritually. Just, uh, John 7, 37. I believe it is 37, 38, 39. Uh, yeah, on that, on that last and most important day of the festival, <laughs> there's another layer to that. Jesus stood up and cried out, if anybody's thirsty, he should come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Well, this river that Ray is alluding to now is the Holy Spirit. John 7, verse 39 says, he says it's about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been received because Jesus had not yet been glorified. He hadn't gone, what, to, through the death, burial, and resurrection. But what he's saying is, is until we get to this millennial point, you can experience the flowing river now. Yeah, our body is the temple. So it's flowing from us. Had a conversation today at a local coffee shop and Oh man, this girl was just hungry. And I just said, look, as you make this decision towards college, the only way you're going to get through this is that the Spirit of God has to flow through you to help you make the next decision. Otherwise, you're dry. And so when we look at Joel 3, 
what you're going to see is, is this river is actually going to come out of the Lord's temple for, yes, a, a thousand years. How does it happen, though? Well, first of all, in Joel 3.18, I want you to know that water is going to go all the way to watering, it says, the Valley of Acacias. That's the northern shore of the Dead Sea. So you got this little river, right, that's flowing from the Lord's temple. Now, in this, you're going to see this is how far this thing is going to flow. So it, it might not look like a lot, but what you're going to see is, is that it's going to go straight to the east. It's going to go from Jerusalem to the northern shores of the Dead Sea, the Valley of Acacias. And where is it going to come from? I want to make sure everybody understands. It's going to come from the Lord's temple. I'm slowing down on a, on a purpose. But how does it just happen? How does the water just, right? Can you go to Zechariah 14, verse 4? Let's begin to tie all of this in together. Zechariah 14, verse 4 and on. And I'm telling you what, you guys, this is ridiculous. You would think they had a minor prophet convention. Let's just talk about how can we get this water to pop up? The Lord. Zechariah 14, 4 says, On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now remember in Acts 1, verse 11. Kevin, sorry, I'm going all over here, but go to Acts 1, verse 11. This is important to understand. Do you remember the disciples, right, are standing there? In Acts 1, 11, uh, the, the, the angel said to the, to the disciples, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up into heaven? Jesus had just ascended. This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, he's going to come back the same way that you saw him going into heaven. So Acts 1, 11 describes he's leaving the Mount of Olives, and guess what? He's coming back. Acts 1.11 is waiting for Zechariah 14.4. Okay, I, I got to keep putting all this together. So Acts 1.11, hey, where'd you go? He's coming back, Zechariah 14.4. On that day, Jesus, the Messiah, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. Okay, so now let's go to this picture here if we can. Okay, so now Jesus is going to come back. He's going to land, literally on the Mount of Olives. Okay, so here you have the Mount of Olives, right? Here you have the Kidron Valley. Okay, this right here, anything inside the walls is considered old city. <laughs> now, this is where it gets kind of fun. This right here, my friends, is called the Golden Gate, the Beautiful Gate. That's the gate that the Messiah gets to come through. So it says Jesus is going to come back to the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west. And what will they do? It will form a huge valley. Okay, now there's a lot of people, this language of, okay, when he puts his feet here, okay, go to Revelation 16, 18 and 19. Ray, I'm going to need your help on this one. Revelation 16, 18, and 19, okay? I'm not saying this is the exact time. I'm just trying to give you a picture here, okay? There were flashes of lightning and rumblings of thunder, and a severe earthquake occurred like no other since man has been on the earth. So great was the quake that the great city split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered in God's presence. He gave her her cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. I'm not applying all of this. I'm just trying to give you an image of what happens of an earthquake. 
An earthquake could, could literally split anything. Imagine the Messiah coming back. You want to jump in on any of that? Yeah. You know, when we read some of these and they sound different, it's, it's almost like we're in a movie and we're switching to different camera angles. It's yeah. talking about the same event. I just think it's the same thing from a different camera yeah. angle. All right. So Jesus is coming back, Mount of Olives. As soon as he lands his plane, <laughs> it splits. The mountain, and I, you got to understand, it forms a huge valley. So that half the mountain will move to the north, half the mountain will move to the, to the south. Now go in verse 5. This now becomes a, a, a path for the remnant to get out. The believers that are there at that time. Now remember, when Jesus comes, he's coming with his holy ones. But there will be existing people, correct? There on the land. We've, we've already proven that, that there's going to be people there on the land. They're going to flee by mountain valley, for the valley of the mountains will extend to Azal. We don't really know. Theologians, historical folks don't really know where that is, except it's to the east. You will flee as, as, uh, as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. That's why many people believe that when the Messiah comes, an earthquake will, will come, because even this language ties it in. Ray, you want to jump in with any yeah, of that? Yeah, it's, it's, he's, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be uh, severe. Um, right. The time's up. The time is up. Valley has split. Mountain is split. Remnant is fleeing. Holy ones are now coming with Jesus. And then it just says in verse, uh, verse 6, on that day there will be no, no light. The sunlight, the moonlight will diminish. It will be a day known only to Yahweh without day or night. That's even reference to, remember, I don't know when it's going to happen. But there will be light at evening. I always think that's interesting. Without day or night, but there will be light at evening. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem. This is the same image, you guys, that we're alluding to. So when the water pops up out of the Lord's temple, in order for it to flow, the earthquake, Christ coming back, needs to take place. Half of that water is going to flow to the eastern sea, and the other half to the Western Sea. Wendy, we were talking earlier, it's to the Med, the Mediterranean Sea, and to the Dead Sea. To the Med and to the Dead. If you need to understand something, right? Earthquake happens. It splits into a valley, and the next thing you know, the water that's coming from the Lord's Temple, the Millennial Temple, it flows two different directions. To the east and to the west. In summer and winter alike. Why is that important? Because in Israel, you guys, water doesn't flow in all of the seasons. In the thousand years, no longer is this a drought. No longer is this an issue. This is a, a, a home where vegetation is going to flourish. And finally, in verse 9, on that day, Yahweh will become king over all of the earth. Yahweh alone in his name alone. So, in the millennial. Okay, what you're going to see and what you're going to uh, establish, let's do this here, is you're going to see Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, it's probably a bad map, but you get the point. You're going to see water flowing to the Mediterranean. And you're going to see water flowing to the Mediterranean, thank you, <laughs> to the Dead Sea. So now what? Well, water's coming from the temple, okay? That's uh, important to understand. Now, you can play this game. This is an interesting challenge for all of us. Can everybody go to Ezekiel 47? 
Because Ezekiel 47, I have heard language of, well, this river that we're talking about, I don't really know if it's literal. I hear this actually all the time. If you say that this river is not literal, then how can you argue that Christ is actually coming back? If he's standing on the Mount of Olives and it splits, which nobody has any problem. Have you ever heard anybody argue? No, he's not coming back. Well, yeah, the Jews and the you know, and maybe the Muslims. But my point is, is if you believe and argue that Christ is physically coming back, you have to say this is actually a river. Now, there's going to be some tension spiritually. Yeah, there's connotations to that. But I want to challenge us on this thinking of like, we're going to see a radical change in Israel in the land. When revival hits an area, right. a legit revival, the whole uh, agriculture, everything shifts. Like all of a sudden, vegetables are massive. Uh, things that were, you know, where the ground was, you know, desert and arid, it's uh, it's flourishing. So we already see manifestations right. of this now. We already see it. We're just going to see it on like a steroid level. So can you guys go to Ezekiel 47? Now, what I want to talk through today, remember, we talked about once Jesus comes back, once the valley is split, once the Mount of Olives is split, the water flows to the west and to the east, right? What I'm going to talk about today in Ezekiel 47 is the water that goes east, okay? There are both. We've already declared that the water is going to go here. So when you look at Zechariah 14, it's both, but Ezekiel 47 is only describing the eastern river. It says, then he brought me, that's Ezekiel, the prophet, back to the entrance of the temple. All of this fits. So he comes back to the temple, to the entrance, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. Amos describes this, Zechariah describes this, and now Ezekiel describes this. Hey, come here, come here, come here. I want to show you where the leak is going to take place. Right? Let's find the source. Let's find the original source of where this water is coming from. And he says, it's under the threshold of the temple, for the temple faced east. Now in verse, uh, it continues on. The water is coming down from under the south side of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Next, this guardian. He brought me out by way of the north gate, and he led me around to the outside, to the outer gate that faced east. There the water was trickling from the south side. So I think it's a fair statement. And what you're going to see in all of Ezekiel 47, we're not seeing rapids coming out of Jerusalem at this point. We're just seeing a nice little trickle. Okay, everybody with me? That's important to note because what you're going to see in scripture is how it unfolds. As the man went out east, he took a, a measuring line in his hand. I always think of Kevin and Rich whenever I think these guys are always measuring and fixing and they're just calculating everything. You throw Shelly in there, and this place is like, well, it looks square. <laughs> uh, I love it. Everybody has these giftings. This man, he goes out east with a measuring line in his hand. He measured off a third of a mile, and he led me through the water. So they're actually walking in the water. So what you're going to begin to see is as they're walking uh, in this water, you're going to see for a third of the mile, they are walking with water up to their ankles. Now it says this, he led me through the water and it came up to my ankles. Then he measured off a third of a mile and he led me through the water. So they're still walking you guys through the water. And then it says that what? It came up to their 
knees. He came up to my knees. Then it says he did it again. So now they're going from a third of a mile to a third of a mile. And then it says again, right? Another third of a mile. Kevin, if we have a third, a third, and a third, how far have they gone? A mile. <laughs> Kevin? One mile. He's gone one mile. At this point, the water's at their waist. So picture following a guy. The source is coming from behind the temple. They're really only walking, you know, this, this river, not this river. And it starts off the ankles. It goes to their knees. And now they're at their waist. This is all in the thousand years. In this process, uh, the scripture then continues. Kevin, if you would, it says again in verse 45. This is where it kind of throws you off. <laughs> he measured off a third of a mile. So now we are past our mile. Am I right, Kevin? Correct. Okay. It's the Olympics, the first Olympics. Trip, uh, steeplechase, isn't that right? Don't they run in water? Yeah. Yeah, see? If you don't watch <laughs> Olympics, you don't get it. Never mind. Don't worry about it. See? Yeah, thanks. It's the early part. So he measured off a third of a mile, and it was a river that I could not cross on foot, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in it. A river that could not be crossed on foot. So uh, he's in. And in verse 6 of Ezekiel 47, verse 6, he asked me, do you see this son of man? Then he led me back to the bank of river. So now, <laughs> poor guy, he's got to walk back again. It's a lot to get a picture out of this. We don't think about the physical side of things. He says, do you see this, son of man? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I had returned, I saw a very large number of trees along both sides of the riverbank. So now if he's back, Kevin. Did he miss the trees the first time? <laughs> Ray? <laughs> you don't have an answer, do you, Ray? I'm not even going to touch that. No, me neither. But all of a sudden, the trees appear. <laughs> okay. Those are my trees. Okay. So apparently, we didn't see them earlier. But now, it's there. Okay. A large number of trees along both sides of the riverbank. He said to me, the water that flows out to the eastern region and goes out to the Arabah, when it enters the sea, we're talking about now, the Dead Sea. When this river that flows from the temple on the eastern side, when it hits the Dead River, look what happens. When it enters the sea, now remember the Dead Sea is the saltiest. It has at one point it had, it is the lowest point on earth. At one time it had more times, six times the salt than any other sea. When you go in there, you just float. Okay, we've been in there when you have cuts. Oh dear Lord. You feel any little cracked skin, any issue if you shave and you miss the spot and it hurts. I mean, all of that. But when this water, when it says this, when it enters the sea, the, the sea of foul water, the water of the sea becomes fresh. In the millennium, the Dead Sea now becomes alive. It says in verse 9. Every kind of living creature that swarms will live wherever the river flows. 
anywhere along from the temple, the source of God, all the way down to now the fresh sea, whatever you want to call it, anything that this water touches, it says it comes to life. Wherever the river flows, and there will be a huge number of fish because this water goes there. Since the water will become fresh, there will be life everywhere the river goes. Fishermen in verse 10 are in heaven. They're going to stand beside it from En Gedi to En Agalim. These will become places where nets are spread out to dry. Their fish will consist of many different kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. The Dead Sea, you guys, you don't even want to put your head under water. It's that bad. If you all of a sudden have an itch on your face and you do this, your eye is like burning. Yes, and interesting, in verse 11, it says it's swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be, and then I love this, the scripture says, for a reason, because it will be left for salt. Some would say that the salt is for the temple offerings. Some would say maybe the salt is for preservatives. But God had a specific plan for the swamps and the marshes. I have a purpose even for those things. Then he says in verse 12, all kinds of trees providing food will grow along both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. Each month they will bear fresh fruit because the water comes from where? The sanctuary. It's the eternal irrigation system. Ray, when you see all this, you want to jump in? It's really the millennium becoming a physical reality of everything that Jesus accomplished and is just manifesting in the physical. Can you imagine every, every month you're like, hey, it's fruit of the month, pears today. Well, what fruit would you want? Can you imagine every month for a thousand years you get fresh fruit because of the power of the kingdom of God? He's overcame everything. In all of this. In fact, don't miss this. It just even says their fruit will be used for food and what? Their leaves for medicine. So even in a thousand years, there will be people that get sick. And they're going to use this fruit to actually experience healing. I actually believe the millennium picture of the flowing river is the initiation, or let me say, I say, let me say it this way. It's the restoration of the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2. Kevin, if you would, would you go there? In Genesis 2, uh, 8 through 9, I think is a good place that we could start. I just, I want to see full circle. In Genesis 2, you see the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then it describes in verse 10, a river that went from Eden to water the garden. So this water originally in the garden Eden was bringing the source. From there it divided, it became the source of four rivers. And you guys know some of these. The name of the first river is Pishon, which encircles the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. And then gold from that land is pure. The Dedalum and Onyx are also there. Then it goes into another river in verse 13. 
In verse 13, it says in Genesis 2, verse 13, the name of the second river is Gihon, which encircles the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows to the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God, in verse 15, took the man, placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over him. And the Lord, it says in verse 16, commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden. We see true restoration of the Garden of Eden. The river and the fruit is now what you begin to see in the thousand years, right? Yeah. I, I don't have a lot to add to that. That's, that's stunning. It is so stunning to me that you have the Garden of Eden, the thousand years. But now watch this. If you would, Kevin, can you go there for me? Go to Revelation 22. And I want to just kind of I go to Isaiah 35, 1 through 2. I want to do this before we go there. Isaiah 35, 1 through 2. Even the prophet Isaiah talks about the restoration of the land and the restoration of this. Isaiah 35, 1 and 2, it says, The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a rose. It will blossom abundantly and will also rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Even the prophet Isaiah said the land is going to be restored. Abundantly. Isaiah 35, it goes in, Kevin, go to verse 6 and 7. Isaiah 35, 6 and 7. Again, the prophet is just describing what I believe is to come. It says, Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will what? Gush in the wilderness. And streams in the desert, the parched ground will become a pool of water. And the thirsty land springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, in the lairs, there will be grass, reeds, and Papyrus, I I love this language that everybody's pointing to the thousand years. We just don't call it that. I want to go to Romans 8. I've actually never really seen this and tied this in. Uh, So I hope you guys can read this and, and, and push back a little bit if you need to. But Romans 8, Kevin, verse 19, 20, 21, and 22. I actually believe we're going to see the fulfillment. Now watch, Romans 8, 19. For the creation eagerly waits for anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. Finally, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. I believe part of this is, that's what it's talking about. Romans is talking about the millennium. So when you see all of this, this is still the most beautiful picture, in my my perspective, of what you see, Kevin, if you'll go there to Revelation. See if I have my notes. And this is uh, Revelation, is it 22? Let me go there. I have it somewhere. Okay, so you have the Garden of Eden. Okay, right? And then you have the Millennium River. And then you have Revelation 21. Sorry, Kevin, I was off chapter. Revelation 21, 1 and 2. Ultimately is what we're after. Revelation 21, uh, 1 and 2. And it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. 
I also, uh, I think that's where I want to go. I also saw the holy city with Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Kevin, that's not so where I want to go. I think it is 22, isn't it? Yes, 22, 1 and 2. <laughs> Let's try that again. That's a great chapter, by the way. <laughs> Revelation 22. Hey, whatever. Revelation 22, 1 and 2 says, Then he showed me the river of living water. Okay, so let's back it up, though. For Revelation 21, you got to understand, we are now in a new heaven and new earth. Ray, this is mind-blowing to everybody, but everything up until this point, it's just... Uh, Peter talks about it. I, can't, I don't remember the address, but he, he talks about the uh, earth and the works thereof will be destroyed with intense heat. Yeah. And so basically he's going to blow it all up. After, the, uh, after Satan's last rebellion, he destroys the whole universe and starts all over. Well, let's go to that verse because I think this is important to see uh, just so everybody has the same backdrop. Can you go to 2 Peter 3, 10, 11, and 12? 2 Peter 3, 10, and 11, and 12. This came from Ray. So after the Millennium River, after the thousand years, it says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. What's a nice way of saying that? Well, verse 11, it says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for and earnestly desire the coming of the day of God. The heavens will actually be on fire and the dissolve because of it, and the elements will melt with the heat. This is crazy, but everything we just described, it's gone. And Revelation 21 says, now we have a new heaven and a new earth. And in Revelation 22, don't confuse this river with the Millennium River. Don't confuse this river with the Garden of Eden River. Revelation 22:1 says, then he showed me the river of living water sparkling like crystal flowing from the throne of God and the lamb down the middle of the broad street of the city. The tree of life was on both sides of the river bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the lamb will be in the city and his slaves will serve him. This is a different time than the Millennium River. I just think it's important that when you study the Millennium River and you read that, you're kind of like, ah, is that the same? It's, it's different because it's the eternal river, right? That's right. It's flowing. And so I just, you have all these different rivers. So now what do you do with all of it? So there's a great theologian. Um, I actually think that when you get in the river, you just need to start walking. And as you start walking... I think it's fair to say you better get on your knees at the same time and pray. As you're walking and as you're praying, I think it's fair to say when you're at your waist and the loins, you are serving with everything you have. And in the process of getting in the river of walking and praying and serving, I think at this point, when people begin to not just stay in this lane and this lane, when they fully submerge themselves into the presence of God, I believe you begin to walk out the fulfillment in your life. But you have to, and this is not a cheesy Christian line, jump in the river, even if it's just a start to get your ankles in. And then you're pressing in and you're praying and you're serving. And in that process, I believe he will show you how to number your days today. But you got to get in the water. It's in prep. 
for the river that's coming. You can experience the original Garden of Eden here and now because of the power of God working in and through your life. That's why we study the millennium. And so here you have, uh, as much as I'd like to say, the end of Joel 3 finally. Yeah, there's more there, but I think you get the picture. And uh, thanks for hanging in there with me on this. It's a pretty sweet uh, image of uh, the river going to the Mediterranean, going to the Dead Sea, and how we can experience the fullness of God.